0: and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. It's just Anoush and Stephen this week as Alba's on holiday. We talk about Boris Johnson's visit to Scotland and the Conservatives' attitude towards the Union and you ask us, how do you feel about Number 10's shake-up of Whitehall comms? So we're recording on a day where Boris Johnson is visiting Scotland and he's been talking up the in inverted commas, sheer might of the UK union. And the thought is that he's he's gone to visit out of fear of the SNP's ongoing power and popularity and the threat that Scotland could opt for independence. And of course, we have the Holyrood elections coming up next year. Stephen, what is the true purpose behind the Prime Minister's visit, do you think?
1: I think it actually is one of those things where it kind of semi does do what it says on the tin, right? In the... For a long time, and indeed, you know, both Alistair Jack Boris Johnson's. I mean, when I say handpicked, what I mean is basically to differentiate than the other. Alastair Jack was his first choice for Secretary of State for Scotland. They are politically quite close. So, you know, it's when I say Alistair Jack said, "Look, the election to decide." Whether or not we should, yeah, you know, whether or not there should be another referendum, is the Scottish parliamentary on it. It wasn't like you know some guy who happened to like be a, an available Scottish politician, like shooting the breeze in a in a sort of unhelpful way. That that is a pretty good guide to where the party leadership is slash was on the issue. Mm. David Mundell, the previous Scottish secretary, who's someone who is, is not as much inside the tent, had also said that. Now, of course, it looks fairly likely the SNP will win an outright majority, then there'll be even more pro-independence MSPs in the next Scottish Parliament than there are in this one. So it is partly about kind of doing the sort of like, this is going wrong, we need to work out a way of of turning this around. Mm. But it is also, the analogy one Conservative MP used to me, who is uh, also an Arsenal fan, was uh, at the start of the season, a lot of uh, kind of supported organisations did a statement which was shared under the hashtag we care to you, about the club's ownership and the fact that they've like you know overseen the kind of gradual um, emasculation of the most successful manager in the club's history uh, utterly disastrous ceo you know seizing control of tra- except i'm uh, sorry i i'm um, it's, it's a subject of considerable pain to me which is getting us off the actual use of this analogy right <laughs> but but what the fans wanted is they wanted some sign from the club's owners, that they understood that things were bad and then this bothered them as well. I think there is an extent to which, and one of the things in a lot of MPs, because although it is fair to say that yeah, the average MP, I think basically all parties, other, of course, than the parties which compete in Northern Ireland and, and have seats there, but actually then if Northern Ireland were to go independent, a Conservative Prime Minister would not have to resign. If Scotland were to go independent, yeah, you, you, you would get however many letters it is for a no confidence, you would have people resigning from the cabinet saying, you know, this is the greatest defeat for, for our party for, you know, for in its entire history. It would be a moment of extreme emotional and political trauma. And I think there is an element to which this is, and they've said oh, "Look, it's, it's their weak air to you moment mm-hmm. when in, in the wake of that statement, Arsenal broke their transfer record to, to sign Nicolas Pepe. And as with Nicolas Pepe, where it's not clear where he actually fit in the tactical vision such as it was of the then coach Unai Emery, it's not actually clear to what extent this kind of Boris Johnson goes to Scotland is like going to, you know, has any kind of policy meet or what he's actually hoping to accomplish. But it, it is, it does, I think, attest to the fact that a lot of Conservative MPs are seriously worried about the relationship between Scotland and the rest of the UK.
0: Hmm. And what's really interesting is I feel like some of the rhetoric from this visit has been thought through quite poorly, considering what you've just said, that it's a matter of, of such grave importance to them. You would have thought that they've thought it through slightly more because drawing attention to the coronavirus response and saying that, you know, the UK was responsible for all sorts of things that have helped out Scottish people, which are, which of course they have with the furlough scheme, for example, just draws attention to the differences, I think, between Scotland and England's responses. Because really, I do think that the coronavirus response has been a story of devolution in a way, because those key services that have been required to to, to step up to, to the response, education, the NHS, social care, and and, and other other things are, are all devolved. So you've had uh, Scotland going by a different lockdown timetable to the UK, for example, and of course that's that's borne out in the polls that Nicola Sturgeon, the Scottish people have more confidence in Nicola Sturgeon's handling of the crisis than they do in Boris Johnson. So I do think that the the fact that they've decided to go on the sort of line that Scotland wouldn't have fared as well without the United Kingdom, whether that's true or not, it nevertheless draws attention to the fact that maybe, you know, Scotland, in terms of its sort of attitudes towards how the crisis has been handled, are more sympathetic to Nicholas Sturgeon's approach than Boris Johnson's. Although there might not be that much between the two approaches, the fact that these these services are devolved and the fact that they've, they've gone by a slightly different timetable, even though they locked down at the same time, sort of highlights highlights the differences between the two leaders and highlights the way that Scotland can go its own way and you can see that in the polling
1: and the interesting thing is i kind of think that although although i completely agree that you're right then it does it has the problem of like returning to the scene of political pain mm. which is you know the perception well but it's it's a combination of the reality that most of the crucial services are devolved and then Scotland and Wales have both left lockdown in a slower and more cautious way than than, than England has right that is just incontrovertibly mm. true, mm. there is a perfectly fair argument to be made about whether or not the Scottish and Welsh governments have have dealt with it brilliantly, but politics is comparative right like you know, and and broadly they are successfully winning on the comparative point. but I think if you want to keep Scotland in the United Kingdom they they have to successfully change people's minds about the period we've just had and the role the union played in it so i basically think that that they sort of if it's it's an argument we think is a losing proposition i guess it's a bit like when we talk about like free movement in the run-up to the brexit referendum well a certain type of kind of like labour mp would be like but don't you understand we can't win a referendum if people think free movement will continue and it's like well free movement is going to continue so what you're actually saying is we can't win a referendum <laughs> and broadly if, if if they can't land the argument that without the united kingdom central bank without all of those other kind of non devolved institutions the pandemic would be it would have been worse then you might as well just hold the referendum tomorrow like yeah it's uh, yeah it's, it's kind of one of those things where i one of the things I, I i do personally find quite frustrating about covering this particular political story is it does feel like a large chunk of like british Unionists don't want to have to it's like this thing where it's just like oh but if we make this argument we might lose and it's just like yeah yeah maybe yeah that's that is unfortunately a feature of the political process
0: Mm.
1: but yeah so I think it does make sense for them to try and and sort of uh, make that case because otherwise yeah what is there other than independence
0: yeah, no, I, I see what you mean. But I, I, I think that it does look too much like political opportunism ju- just to just to bring it up now. And just sort of in relation to the support that they've given during, during the pandemic, because I feel like and I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, and, I, and, it, and it's my oversight. But during the election campaign for the 2019 December election, I feel like the union and Scotland weren 't really a focus of the of the conservative campaign of, of of any of the campaigns actually in England, and although you know their, their main pledges you know stop plans for a second independence referendum, get Brexit done so Scotland can move on or whatever the rhetoric was i didn 't really think that they fought it on, on on the strength of the union particularly because they knew that they had such a vulnerability there in terms of their Brexit deal and so i do think it's it's almost like oh well now we have to talk about it again so let's bring it up in you know in relation to the latest thing that we can think of whereas they haven't built that groundwork i don't know if that's fair but i just i just feel like it was it was left out of the conversation last year
1: well i guess the irony is that i also i suddenly realized that you of course did not go down to scotland in the last election <laughs> so you were you know you were doing doing your towns in england but, yeah. so the the weird irony is that of course the scottish Campaign is was devolved. Yeah, and in the Scottish general election campaign, the Scottish Conservatives did have a very kind of strong, repeated message of you know if you vote for the SNP, there'll be another referendum and it will trigger Scottish independence. Only voting for the Conservatives can 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 stop that. Basically, was was their kind of core message. Yeah, in large chunks of Scotland, coupled with the fact that they are basically the only viable Leave party north of the border. So or south of the border, I suppose, depending on your perspective. But I think what is what you are fair to say is that it does kind of expose this central problem that there are really only so many times you can fight an election on a platform of if you vote for the SNP, we'll have another referendum, without then like having the another referendum.
0: Yeah, I also don't think that that's a sort of... That's almost like an excuse not to have to make the argument about the union, because they did that. You know, obviously, they've done they did that in the 2015 election. And then in the 2019 election, it was vote Labour and you'll get two referendums. But I, in a way, that's almost that's almost a cover for having to actually talk about the substance of the referendum. Like like you're saying, you're putting off having the actual referendum or the actual debate that the referendum would would force.
1: Yeah. It, I mean, it does just feel identical to the kind of crouch of doom that Remainer's had got into by the time of the 2016 election, right down to the fact that people will kind of go like, but we had a referendum already. And it's just like, well, yeah, sorry, that's how politics works. Sometimes you've, yeah, you've just, you just got to, because yeah, like the thing, the thing about the like vote for us to stop another referendum is it is a, well, I was about to say it's a great message for winning seats in Scotland. It was a pretty good message for winning seats in Scotland for the Conservative Party in 2016 mm. and 2017. The problem in 2019, and this is why, on election night, a lot of Scottish Conservatives thought they would be fine who weren't. And if you look at their results, you can see why. Because they broadly hit their win number, as it were. Mm. Right, so they got yeah, they basically got, you know, the amount of votes necessary to hold on from the perspective of the SNP strength, assuming that the kind of um the barrier to people who voted no in twenty fourteen voting for the SNP continued. The big problem was the Incredible willingness of Scottish Labour voters to vote SNP in 2019. And they, and again, as you say, right, this thing isn't if your message is vote for me and we won't have a referendum, that's not actually an argument for an outcome in the referendum. It's an argument for not having a referendum. I mean, in general, these do all just feel like shortcuts to sort of making an argument for why they think the union is good.
0: If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think, and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12.
1: Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live.
0: Now it's time for a section we like to call
1: You Ask Us.
0: So this is a question that was submitted today. What do you make of number 10's plans to cut Whitehall Department press offices by more than half? Bring them all direct central control bring them all into direct central control and introduce daily televised press briefings now before we start discussing this i would suggest that anyone listening to this section should go and read alva who's who's on holiday this week read her piece on the website which is headlined here's the problem with dominic cummings plan to shake up government comms so stephen what did you first think when you heard of this this plan
1: well, I guess I got, my immediate think, thought, thought was, and I didn't think the government had absorbed quite how big of an undertaking it was embarking on. Mm. I mean, I'm all for it because I love transparency. I don't really agree with most of this government's political aims. I kind of assume that the stuff I agree with them on will be the stuff that they'll like. I mean, obviously, assuming they will betting their U-turn is like a pretty safe bet on most issues. <laughs> but I kind of assume that like, the bit of the Venn diagram of like things they're willing to like expend any political capital on and things that Stephen likes about this government just do not meet at all right so I'm therefore quite relaxed about them having like a thing which is really transparent and will I think paralyze decision making but like one of the problems not just in the COVID response but one of the structural problems this government has because they're so centralizing but there's obviously you know there's there's not that many of them right they they have slightly more spats than Theresa May at the start of her time in office but because they're even more centralized that they they kind of they have less, if that makes sense, like the, mm. the, the centre is too overworked for the amount of control it wants, And that is what causes, you know, all number of delays, it's been a problem with the COVID response, been a, a problem across the policy piece. right? And now they are going to invent a single kind of face of the government, who also crucially, the face of the government reports to the communications director, not to the Prime Minister. I just think that sounds like a recipe for organisational dysfunction, right? Because it's one thing to like be evasive or indeed you know to talk about incredible detail in a, in a kind of off the record briefing it's quite another to be able to do that on air without looking shifty without reflecting poorly on the government pmq's takes a lot of capacity out out of out of downing street and i think that is valuable because it, it is a valuable accountability mechanism both directly in terms of what the MPs might ask, but indirectly in terms of what the Prime Minister finds out about what's going on across their government, while they're doing the well, what can we say if we're asked about health, you know, kind of preparation stage. But this is going to be like that, but you know, sort of a lot more intense mm. with someone who is going to have quite a difficult role with a government that already has, I think, as well as its tendency to centralization, which I think is, you know, well it is just indisputable it does have a tendency to centralize power and and no amount of sympathetic briefings about how dom is not a centralizer will change will change <laughs> the basic reality that they do centralize everything added to the centralization i think that there's a tendency to kind of like panicked announcements to get their way out of trouble and i think then the press conferences will exaggerate that the other thing as alva said in her really good piece is that actually like a lot of the people they're getting rid of aren't like press officers they're people who are like communicate with you about like your mot or whatever so people will i think notice a marked deterioration in their quality of government as a result
0: yeah no i i thought that 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 was a really good point as well because the 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 main way that we communicate with press officers for different departments is through is through the press officer in the purest sense which is someone who sort of talks you through the policy tries to defend it attempts to correct you if you've if you've written it up in a way that they don't like and all of that of course is quite useful because it tells you a great deal about what the policy's intentions are and and what the government line is on that policy which you know even if you don't agree with it or think that it's bollocks then you <laughs> then you still know what the thinking of the government is that's why my concern is actually that this isn't this isn't a step towards transparency on policy grounds because it kind of takes, I feel like that there is there is a part in Alva's piece that suggests that it could take some of the power away from individual departments over the communication of their policy, and I think that that probably is a problem for transparency because sometimes you know you'll call up the Treasury and say what about this thing, they'll give you their perspective on it, and and the Department for for Business will give you a completely different line on it, which suggests that there's tensions between the two, or, you know, gives you a fuller picture of how this policy has been bouncing around government and what the different views are and, and who should be held accountable. I think if all of that is centralised, or or if there's too few press officers left in each department to really give you that kind of insight, then I think that's going to be harder for writing sort of those policy pieces that point out the problems behind the sort of headline announcements. So that that would be my sort of quite nerdy apprehension about this new announcement. But what's interesting is this tele televised thing. I mean, do they think that their number 10 briefings have been going well on TV? You know, is that was that part of the thinking behind it? Do you know?
1: Yeah, well, so because the, yeah, the, the public liked the hmm. press conferences, apparently. I mean, obviously, they did, you know, they they watched them. That is, I think, the other the other thing which I think, because I, 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 I agree with, well, I guess I, I I can see where your concerns on transparency come from. I think the thing that is interesting in practice is, as we're seeing with the Treasury, right, you know, a couple of months ago, Shadi Javid walks out, they have their centralised spads, lots of people, including me, wrote pieces about going, you know, this is like the biggest and most significant enhancement of Downing Street's power, basically forever, which I mean, in theory it ought to have been Mm. but in practice fast forward to the present and the chancellor gets still gets to do like all of the good announcements like it's (laughs) it's it's, it's like one of the like hilarious like unwritten sort of like things about their their relationship then you know like boris johnson does a speech about how he's Rooseveltian, and then basically gets like the rounding error announcements yeah yeah kind of like you know like oh and and we have spent the stationary budget of the nhs on leveling up (laughs) <laughs> Latin, 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 and then Mr. is gets to be like, "Aren't I attractive and urbane? Here's a billion, quadrillion <laughs> pounds!" Like, yeah, like the, and I suspect in practice, then what will happen is, is that if you're pretty Patel, right, you're not going to lose your ability to like assert your pretty Patelness because she's a serious political operator. I'm really worried mm. that I'm coming across as, like, I don't know, like, the the armed wing of the, like, pretty Patel for PM wing. I mean, it, it, <laughs> I, I find it a horrifying prospect. I just do think that she's, like, an impressive political operator. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I just don't think that, like, Pretty Patel's going to be like, oh, yeah, sure, sure, I, I, I'll give up my my my, my spinners. No, I, you know, like, the, the National Crime Agency will lose its, like, stakeholder communication, right? Yeah, like, it will be other bits of the kind of government machine that lose that kind of sort of grip. But of course, if I'm wrong, then you do have those sort of transparency problems. I think, yeah, it isn't you know they felt the press conferences went well. They obviously did allow them to kind of shift the narrative and control it more effectively. Yeah, I guess it's kind of like the it's like the hundred thousand tests target, right? Like, yes, that did get them out of like whatever like media row they were in that day. Mm. But fast forward to the present day, and like, why are people not shopping, not going out, not taking advantage of a lot of the 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 eased in restrictions well because they're still scared on the health front and people basically believe that test and trace is a disaster and the government is inept why do they think that oh because of the very public failure to get a grip on testing
0: yeah no i think I, i think that the televised version of 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 these briefings could still be really useful for us as journalists because although we've we've done a number of podcasts saying discussing the problems with them they still told us quite a bit about what the government was concerned about you could tell you know down to the minister that they decided to send out and also when I think Pretty Patel got quite a few of the Saturday slots which um may not have had as many viewers as as some of the more sort of blockbuster weekday ones so you know you can you, you could probably intuit what was going on it in the government, or at least what they wanted to communicate by their choices, and so hopefully that that will be the same for these sort of new White House-style press conferences that, that they're apparently going to introduce.
1: Yeah, and I think like my other sort of concern and question with them, right, is there is a certain type of question that people kind of feel they have to ask for TV that I don't think mm-hmm. leads leads to like particularly effective coverage of policy, of which kind of like the recent example. Is the number of times Rishi Sunak has been asked on the BBC, "Are we in a recession?" Like I said, I completely understand that there is a strong TV argument why you have to do that. However, it does, in practice, mean because the broadcasters, for understandable reasons, are basically going to be guaranteed a slot. Then, then a large chunk of it gets devoted to questions like, "Is are we in recession?" Mm. I mean, the doy everything shut, at least everything was shut when that question was being asked. And it minimises, not least because actually, you you saw this with like the, yeah, I know this from talking to other people about their questions, right? This nerve wrackingness and when you, what you want is a really specific policy question, but you also don't want your publication to look stupid by asking like a a question that's deeply boring in inverted commas on air. And so I think it, it, it does have the potential to change like the questions that are asked of power And not in a wholly positive way.
0: Yeah, no, I didn't think, yeah, I didn't think about it from the perspective of what kind of questions people would want to land in a TV format. But that is true. Because I do do remember when Patrick asked his question about care homes, you know, he actually got an answer. But I think, you know, I think I think I remember him saying that if he'd if he'd been somewhere else, Patrick Maguire, this is our former former political correspondent, if he'd been somewhere else that perhaps was less preoccupied with social care policy, then he might not have been able to ask a question like that.
1: Yeah, I think that's the thing, it's like lots of people were very kind about Patrick's question. I thought it was a very good question. And yeah, it was thoughtfully done and et cetera, et cetera. But it also does show how like your institutional incentives allow you to be the best version of yourself. In that we had a very strong investigation. You had done lots of great work on care homes. That was an issue that was of huge importance to us, our readers, our corporate brand. And it also was a short, sharp T V question and got a you know, got mm-hmm. a, an answer in the actual newsline. But like that mostly wasn't because Patrick's very talented, although he is and I everyday like do a like little kind of like stalker's board where I throw darts at a picture of Matt Shorley for stealing him but um, (laughs) but it it was also partly because of the institutional incentives which allowed him to demonstrate his excellence and yeah it just I just think like I do think there's a real chance it will paralyze how the government operates I don't care about that to be honest it will result (laughs) in a kind of worse coverage of policy I do care about that quite a lot and it will take away government communications officers away from like that quite important sort of tangible stuff about like you know roads closures driving safety all of the stuff that alva talks about in her piece and yeah. concentrate on like the hubbub of westminster which will result in a worse quality of governance for people
0: mm. are they getting rid of the sort of old lobby briefing system as part of this
1: no and i think actually for a publication like us where we mostly where mostly are you know we'll go if like you know, Patrick has a specific question or if I'm like you know, go and ask X I think actually mm. like it, it will work pretty brilliantly for for most of those organizations because like there will still be the morning session so I am less concerned about you know what does it mean for like local news what does it mean for us etc mm. etc
0: mm.
1: I am more concerned about what does it mean for you know like governance. And like the quality of government we have overall, where I think it, it will have uh, some, you know, a fair amount of sort of negative knock on consequences. I think, of course, I, the other sort of flip side of of this is then the interesting thing is, I think, uh, you know, I think it's unlikely that this will be something that it kind of unhappens. I think in another way that, the, that I suspect then where it will eventually end up is the person doing the briefing will be the director of comms. Or at least they'll, you know, they will have to be someone who reports direct to the prime minister, because I just don't see how you can have a situation in which like, you know, this person is probably going to be like the face of the government in a way that is really only equaled by a prime minister and their chancellor. I just don't think it's tenable for that person to like report to the comms director.
0: You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelian, and my colleague, Stephen Bush. We're produced by Nick Hilton, and our music is "Devil by the Devil," licensed under Creative Commons. I'm laughing because I think it, I think someone wrote in saying it's actually "Devil with the Devil." <laughs>
1: oh, of course, yeah, no, it would. That would actually, that would make a lot more sense, wouldn't it? <laughs>